Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. So which is it? Do you starve a fever and feed a cold, or do you feed a fever and starve a cold? And what does that have to do with anything that's keto-related? Does it have anything to do with ketones? Does it have anything to do with autophagy? Autophagy is something that happens, and now everybody nearly knows about it because of fasting and uh, small miracles that are in fasting. So we're going to talk about these things. And what's a bacterial infection and what's a viral infection? Let's start with fasting. As we recall, because we've talked about this a number of times before, fasting has been used for thousands of years, right? And supposedly the only the, the oldest documentation we have is back to Hippocrates, which is four or 500 years BC, which now makes that about 2,500 years ago. That's pretty old. Well, it also was used in the beginning of the last century to treat epilepsy. Remember those three-week water fasts only for all pediatric epilepsy and the the cure rate was about 50% and 50% didn't cure, but they got a dramatic improvement. So that was something. The trouble with fasting was is you can only go so far, right? Eventually you die if you stop eating completely. Fasting was also used for type 1 diabetics, pediatric diabetics, and Type 1 diabetes didn't last very long at all. And so the only way to really treat that was with periods of fasting, which, as you know now, because you've probably all tried fasting of some sort, that it changes your metabolism drastically and gets you away from uh, using glucose as a fuel and into fat, and therefore the change is incredible. However, fasting, again, is a short-term solution, as profound as it is. And you certainly have probably heard by this point, uh, Dr. Fong up in Canada, they have basically a fasting institute. They have a lot of experience on people doing various lengths of time of fasting. So it's all over the place now, and it's certainly uh, well discussed. And then you have intermittent fasting, which is having a narrow eating window. Then you can choose what that is. But the longer you can go without eating, generally the better. So people will have an eating window that is probably eliminate a breakfast and have a lunch and dinner. They may have an eating window from noon to six. And so that would be a 18 hour intermittent fast. And they can even have less. 
Okay, so that's the fasting background. And what happens is fasting is obviously your ketones go up and your glucose, though it is still present, is no longer your primary fuel. You're burning fat. And so burning fat means that your liver is making ketones. The fat is being released from your fat cells, assuming you have it, sent off to your liver, and it's being made into three different ketones. Off it goes, like a package. All right then, so where does that come into feed a fever and starve a cold? Well, when people get sick, and it's not just people, by the way, it's from flies to, I don't know about amphibians, but from flies to all sorts of mammals and right up to humans, that when they get sick, it's called a sick response in which they want, now we're just using sickness. I didn't say bacterial viral, but generally it implies, it implies a bacterial infection. You go away in the dark, no sound, crawl under the covers, and you just disappear for a while. You try to sleep if you can. And when you get better, you come out, go down and have some dinner or lunch or breakfast or whatever it is, but you're not really hungry at, at terms of that. That generally is a, it's acute, it's uh, somewhat of a high fever, and you don't really have much of an appetite. You don't have much of a thirst either. But water is a good thing because if it is acute, you will have probably a pretty high fever. High fever being 104 to 107, but certainly something pretty easily measurable. So other examples of bacterial infections are strep throat. In fact, I just had that last year and I hadn't had that in probably 40 years. Who knows why I got it? Uh, tuberculosis of bacteria, whooping cough, UTIs, urinary tract infections, and they can be treated with antibiotics. So the opposite side about viruses. Viruses are, and let me go on a little bit, actually a little longer with back, what is bacterial. Bacterial Bacteria can live outside the body. They do find a host in which they can multiply and so on, but they are their own cells. They reproduce by cellular reproduction. Whereas viruses have to invade a cell. They clearly need a host. They need to get in the cells, reproduce their series of proteins, and then they burst outside the cell. But they need a host, and they need to live inside a cell. Bacteria don't live inside another cell. You can say they live in a host, and they're animal animal, but they also can survive, bacteria can survive outside of the animal that they infected, whereas a virus generally cannot. Bacteria, bacterial infections, bacterial meningitis, think of, and you also actually have a viral meningitis. Bacterial is a little, little more dangerous. And these are all treated by antibiotics. That's another differential. So they're acute, they're generally much higher inflammation, and Ideally, it lasts a shorter period of time, a very abrupt onset and abrupt decline resolution that you will probably need to get an antibiotic for. Okay, viral infections are not something that there's an immediate cure for because they, they can't tell what your virus is. It's a little better now. Um, if, they, if you're going in during flu season and you do the walk-in, they will already have uh, the ability to test for these particular strains of viruses. Or put it another way, they will tell you if you're positive for the strain that's popular in in your neck of the woods, and they'll tell you that you don't have that strain. They won't be able to tell you what strain you have. So 
All right, so that's the differential. And the symptoms you have for viruses that you're achy, uh, but it's not a high fever. And you basically are encouraged to go treat it symptomatically. You know, go get a decongestion if you have a runny nose because you can have bacterial sinusitis and you can have viral sinusitis. People tend to think that viruses are more, are flus for the most part. That's true. Not always colds. So we're getting a little nuanced here. Also on on the world history stage, so to say, that the two big viral crises were the Spanish flu pandemic, which was around 1916, the end of to uh, 1918, the end of World War One, lost millions by a third of the population of the world, from what we understand. That was after World War One, overlapping to after, and HIV is a virus. When you think of bacterial infections, you can think of the plague, which is the Black Death, smallpox, and such. Pretty gruesome either way, right? Well, it ends up, and this is actually now coming from pretty recent research on both sides of the country, from Yale and over in the Salk Institute in California, by La Jolla, that they did a pretty interesting experiment. They had mice one group of mice, they gave a bacterial infection to, inoculated them with that, and they gave a viral infection to, and they fed them both. And they found that the bacterial infected mice that were given the food died. The viral infected mice that were given the food did well. Well, then they did the opposite. They starved them for a couple of days, which is a long time in mice life measurements that they found that the so the, they didn't feed either the bacterial or the virally infected mice, but the virally infected mice died by not being fed anything. And the bacterially infected mice did well by not having anything to eat. In fact, they survived. So just the opposite. So it's interesting. So what they find out is that the key for viruses actually is to have enough glucose. You need the glucose for your immune system, for that part of your immune system to flourish and to recognize what that virus is and to set up uh, inappropriate antibodies and so on. Whereas in bacteria, remember that's a quick onset, high fever and so on, is that they don't, they specifically, and here's the part that has to do with ketones and fasting and um, autophagy is that it is abs- it is doing just the opposite. When you don't eat for a while, the first thing that drops or changes in your body is your white blood cell count, either known as WBCs, white blood cells, or leukocytes. They drop. They just die off. And so your white blood cells, not completely, of course, uh, your white blood cells can rise and fall almost on a daily basis. So you can lose 75% of your white blood cells in your body and then three or four days later regenerate, regenerate it all. So it's that fast. And part of it is it needs to model itself to whatever the aggressor is. It needs to find out what that bacterial infection is. And in order for that to happen, it kills off yesterday's models, if you will, to remodel your immune system around this particular invader and make antibodies and so on and so forth. So that's that's a real survival mechanism. Also, by not eating, as you know, because you're listening to this podcast, that you've begun creating ketones. 
and ketones in themselves, and this is part of these particular research, it's not trying to sell ketones to you, is that ketones are an anti-inflammatory. So they're highly anti-inflammatory, highly supportive. So not eating anything, if you have a viral infection, if you know you have a viral infection, is a good thing. Stay hydrated, but you don't eat anything. Fast. So it's fasting. That's why fasting works for so many different situations. We already talked about type 1 diabetes, pediatric, epilepsy, pediatric, various illnesses. You know, so it does have its place. There's not a lot of documentation of what kind of cancers and who had cancers and who fasted and how they get. There's very little of that. It's just you can't do those kind of things, certainly in the U.S., however voluntarily it may be arranged and implemented, uh, those kind of tests are not going to be allowed. You usually have to go to Eastern Europe and or dated information. But interesting. But anyways, that's why it works. So you now have gone, you're going into glucosis. Glucosis. And you're going into, into ketosis. And you now are generating your own anti-inflammatories, which are ketones. At the same time, you're remodeling, if, you're, if we're talking about a bacterial infection, remodeling your immune system so it then can come back online. It can come back in full with a more specific targeted uh, immune system. So that's interesting. So autophagy is, is, comes in here. It's really a word that's used about this specific transition when you're dropping down one whole team of white blood cells and you're building up a whole nother team of white blood cells, uh, the remodeling. So you think of autophagy as remodeling. Uh, organelles are they're turning over, they're, they're being updated, but the cell doesn't die. That's called apoptosis. If the cell dies, that's apoptosis. So the remodeling that goes on to tune up your immune system is autophagy. So you have autophagy, increased ketones, uh, anti-inflammatory, and you get all that by not eating anything. <laughs> so fasting clearly has its place, and there's a whole metabolism that changes when you fast. So with viruses, though, when you're feeling achy and they can't really... They did a strep test, right? You went in and they strep the back of your, I took a swab at the back of your throat and they said, well, you don't have strep. What they mean is we can't find any bacterial infection that you have. That would then mean you probably have a viral infection. Therefore, you're feeling pretty lousy. Pick up some things at the, at the uh, drugstore, CVS or wherever, to make yourself feel comfortable. Or if you're Working with a naturopathic doctor, there's a lot of things you can do in botanical medicine to make yourself feel comfortable as your body goes through adapting to a viral infection. But the key thing is, is to eat. So you don't want to starve yourself during a viral infection. So there's a lot of, it's just really interesting. So, you know, it goes back at least a couple hundred years. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, they said feed a fever. That's easy to remember, F and F, feed a fever and starve a cold. So what they meant when the high fever, which is chances are it's bacterial, that you should not, you should starve that. You should send that kid to his bed, in bedroom, and have him go lie down in a dark room and have him come out and hopefully sleep through the night. Same in the morning. Um, however, the achiness that comes with the flu, uh, those are the kind of the, that he probably picked up from school or you picked up from work or whatever it is you do, that that's the kind of thing that you do want to continue eating. Uh, glucose is important. That doesn't mean having ice cream and lollipops and everything else. 
Uh, it just means that fasting isn't appropriate and uh, don't put that extra stress on your body. Okay then, so now you know about autophagy, you know about in essence an element of fasting that you're taking simply what they call sickness behavior or sickness response, it's a real thing. You can put quotes around both of those. And that simply means from flies to humans, when they're not feeling well, they don't fly, they're grounded. They go to the room and so that sickness behavior and sickness response is bacterial. That's for a bacterial infection primarily. If they just feel in and out of achiness and obviously don't come up positive for a bacterial infection, for the most part, they probably have a flu. Flu being short for influenza, a type of it as viral. That that would be something, you know, get to your meals. Don't be starving yourself. That would not be a benefit. Even if you don't feel that hungry, and your appetite shouldn't be affected that much. You should have a natural inclination to go out there and eat something. That's important. So that differential is a big deal. You can measure it by your by taking your temperature, low temperature, viral, high temperature, and obviously feeling achy is bacterial. Don't feed a fever, don't feed a bacterial infection, feed a viral influenza infection. Okay, so what I was going to do, there's this has just come up in the last couple of years that there's a few references there, and I'm going to plug those in. And this is good information that's actionable and something you can even you know keep in your kitchen, so to say. A thermometer, knowing when to feed your children or feed yourself, and knowing when not to and send yourself to bed or to send them, them to bed and in, in a dark room and just let them sleep it off and that would be the bacterial infection. Okay, so let me see if I have anything else to cover on this. I will be attaching just a few links, a couple of videos, very short, a couple minutes. that goes over explaining exactly this. And it's such a really interesting verification of what used to be called an old wives' tale. You know, something that you only heard about, you didn't know if it was appropriate or not. Did you need to force somebody to eat or not to eat? They felt lousy but didn't want to eat. Was that okay? Were they starving themselves? Well, now you know, yes, they were starving themselves. If they weren't hungry, let them not be hungry. That's actually the healthiest thing they could do. We'll get back to talking about fasting at length for other situations. But for the, for the time being, this was to the point, something you can immediately use pre-flu season knowing to be in ketosis is a big deal. One other thing I wanted to add, a whole other study. So I just got finished saying that being in ketosis is great if you have a bacterial infection. Being in ketosis and, and fasting is great if you have a bacterial infection. It's not great if you have a viral infection. Okay, just got through saying that. All right, now I, let me add a layer of confusion. So that was having it. That was you either had viral or you had bacterial, okay? So what about the idea of being healthy? Is being in ketosis, nutritional ketosis, long-term healthy for you in regards to do you get fewer colds and flus because you're in nutritional ketosis? Well, it ends up you are. That 
they now measure it. It's mostly about respiratory, you know, lung infections, throat infections, flus. So this axis, this study is about people who are in nutritional ketosis, have been in ketosis for a while, healthy ketosis, we'll call it, have fewer respiratory infections. So they have fewer, all viruses, so they have fewer viral infections. So this is not about getting the virus and having the virus. This is about preventing viral infections. And so they go into uh, how you are adapted when you are burning ketones primarily and how your body's ready, better ready to equip. But if this person who's been in ketosis for a while somehow gets a flu, gets a viral infection, having some food is a good idea. So isn't that interesting? So nutritional ketosis helps you as a preventative. It doesn't necessarily help you once you get your flu, but it will definitely help you sustain, avoid bacterial infections if you get a bacterial infection, given what I just said at the beginning. So that's your tip for the week. It was meant to be short and sweet. We have a number of podcasts coming up, and I figure this is an interesting reference to who's interested in keto and why would you care? I don't mean people's names, I mean topics. So I have uh, Danlos Ehlers syndrome to cover. Uh, you'll find out what that is. Somebody asked me to cover that. That was a, a little deep. In the last three weeks, I think I've had 10 people ask me about prostate cancer. Here's the thing about prostate cancer. Not deep, shallow thing to say, because we're going to save that for another podcast, but shallow meaning is that generally, I remember hearing this two or three years ago, oh, well, prostate cancer didn't respond well to the ketogenic diet. Well, there was never, that data never existed actually. Now, there was never a study out there of people with prostate cancer on a measurable ketogenic diet. It was usually people who were on a high fat diet, a high carb diet and high fat diet. So it was kind of bogus. Anyway, long story short, now come three years later, is that at least among colleagues and other people who have coached people, not as the exclusive physician or health coach, but as adjunctive to their conventional and or oncologist, that they've done very well. So uh, the belief, at least in the circle that I'm part of and the conferences that I go to, have the idea of a ketogenic diet with prostate cancer as being a good thing. So not a lot of research. You're certainly not going to go into PubMed and say, hey, look at all this, the whole ketogenic aspect, low-carb, high-fat applications in terms of formal studies is a long way off. It's only little bits and pieces. It's mostly there about weight loss. We'll talk more about prostate cancer. And then I have a big interview coming up about three weeks out, which probably won't get released for another three weeks. But it's Dr. Kilmer McCauley, who's the one who brought homocysteine to the surface back in the 70s. It was so controversial at the time because it challenged the current dogma, which is still the dogma of today, the cholesterol theory of heart disease. So I don't believe cholesterol has anything to do with heart disease. And obviously the people that listen and read and go to the same conferences that I go to believe the same thing. However, back in the day, if you can remember, imagine the late 70s and early 80s, that was a real threat to the dominant way of thinking. So Dr. McCulley was in Massachusetts working at Mass General, and you had the Framingham study, Framingham study, which was all about supporting the cholesterol theory of heart disease, 
on the surface, not down in the data. So within the same state, there's a big rift. And so even though he had a lot of NIH grants to start and, and uh, describe homo elevated homocysteine and what that means, that he was shut down. He was shut down and he was disassociated from his medical school, which was Harvard. And it took, and for two years, he couldn't even get a job anywhere in the country as a physician. Later, he ended up getting a job at a VA hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. But he continued on with his research just on his own sort of now academic research, didn't have a lab. By 1998, he's a hero and he's getting all these awards for the research he did. And if it wasn't for his research going overseas to Europe, where it could be where it wasn't blocked, it could be appreciated. They kept it alive and expanded on it. So they, in essence, made the appeal, the social appeal for uh, Dr. McCauley possible. So we'll talk to him. He's come a long, long way from those years. He's now 86 years old and he works a lot with cancer and uh, still in connection to homocysteine. So we'll hear his story. We'll hear what he's working on now. And I'll break it up into a number of podcasts with prequels because there will be a degree of uh, technical language around all that. So until then, and that should keep us booked up for a while, and then we'll probably be someplace into the new year. So we'll see you next week. Thanksgiving's coming up. I hope you guys have had something special planned, like uh, a keto Thanksgiving, brine your turkey or whatever. But until next time, take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of... At least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make 
for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.